Welcome to the Building and Growing Podcast. We're delighted to have Ben Martin with us today. Welcome, Ben. Hey, Lucas. How are you doing? Good, good. Thanks so much for joining us today. No problem. Um, so Ben is a director of Pearson Ham Consulting um, Group, previously was vice president at Dex. You've got a fantastic background, Ben. And so let me hand it over to you to do a bit of an intro to yourself. Uh, cheers, Lucas. Thanks so much. Um, yeah, intro wise, I've got a varied background. I started out in banking 1994, which is like a long time ago. Um, I started in NatWest. Yes. Uh, I was in the treasury management and we looked at liquidity and capital, nice. all these important things. Um, I then moved through NatWest and went on to the trading floor in the investment bank and mm-hmm. spent 10 years there on interest rate and foreign exchange rate management and derivative selling. Um, and then I pivoted because I thought I need to get some more strings to my banking bow yes. uh, and moved into business banking. So I spent a couple of years on, on the business banking front, um, which wrapped up about 20 or so years in, in banking. Fantastic. Um, and then thought I needed something to do something new. So moved into, um, actually I moved out of banking and started my own company. Okay. Which was like a part fintech, part advisory company, um, and and built out a few products there. Yes. Really focusing on helping SMEs understand their banking and understand um, all the you know, the macro environment that went around. Brexit was happening, so I kind of pivoted mm. to do some, some Brexit tracker uh, and at the same time became a semi-professional athlete. So I did some uh, really cool uh, adventure racing um, in, in that time. Yeah. Watched my kids grow up a little bit, spent a lot of time with them. And then 2018 came along and, uh, and Dex, Dex, Dex picked up the phone. Um, so uh, I then worked for them for four years yep. up to VP product, um, had a, had an amazing time at Dex. It was Receipt Bank, then it got renamed to Dex, yeah. got brought out by HD Capital. So we just went through um, you know, huge scale, huge injections of pace from from the new the new PE owners. Yeah. Um, and I learned a lot. It was really, really, really good fun there. Yes. Uh, and then left 2022 and uh, came to Piss and Ham. Uh, and, and helped uh, buy a company, M&A that company, and, and build up that company where we are now. Excellent, excellent. What a diverse career. It is, yeah, yeah. yeah. Not sure how useful that is, but it's certainly diverse. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, look, I think, you know, from, from sort of investment banking to B2B banking to founding your own business, then working for a fast-growing startup, and then, you know, the dynamic certainly changes when there's a cash injection from a PE firm um, to, you know, to now consulting post-acquisition. I think it's, uh, you know, very varied, and I'm sure Thanks. there's going to be a lot of interesting war stories today. Yeah, yeah, you know, you learn a lot, and I think that is important. You might not get everything right, you might not get everything wrong, but I think if you learn and retrospectively look at what you did, how you can do things differently, how you can apply apply lessons from 20 years ago to now, because some of the folks, you know, are, are a bit younger. Um is, is kind of what drives me and, and, and what pushes me on. Yeah, fantastic. And look, I mean, I think it's worth us saying that, you know, we met when you were at Receipt Bank or Dext. Um, I was at Revolut Business. I think that right. B2B space, you know, when, when you can find pain points and solve those pain points, it translates to real sticky sort of customer retention. Yeah, it, it does. Um, I mean, sticky and retention, two, two, two really hard words to do in, mm. in the B2B world. But um, you also also giving them a product that they really you know they really use i think revolut is a fantastic product been using it for many years myself um and dex was a great product receipt bank was a great product so um yeah. i think if you've got you know i did a presentation recently on um how you build out product mm. where you need to find a 
a problem to go and solve. Yes. Um, yeah. And it's not just any problem. It needs to be a, you know, a reoccurring problem that, that, that is, is, is causing them issues in their daily lives. And, uh, and I think those two products massively help in the, in, in the, in the B2B space. Indeed, indeed, yeah. And look, I think uh, you know, it's one thing that has now really demonstrated itself as funding has sort of, you know, the t- funding taps have tightened. If you don't solve a product, which, sorry, solve a problem, which is a recurring problem, yep. you don't have recurring monthly cash flow. And so you really see these startups that were a bit fluffy all falling away now. Yeah, I think that dash to profitability, which was what, 2021, 2022, definitely last year, mm. um, has has meant a lot of the, the fintechs that were, that were growing user growth and had great, you know, um, growth stories, but mm. weren't focusing on profitability. Really pivoted, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, which which kind of makes sense, you know. And especially in a high interest rate environment, um, you know, money is now is now just not free. There needs to be a return on it. Yes. Um, I think a lot of new lessons are being learned, and there's some positives because you've got some some fintechs out there that sit on massive cash balances. Mm-hmm. Suddenly they're earning five and a quarter percent at the Bank of England. So, yeah. um, you know, e- even that is <laughs> going back to my previous career. I knew a lot about that, um, and that's actually why I got looking to go back into banking because what happened to SVB? You know, it was actually quite a sound business, business, yes. great credit, but it took the wrong liquidity policies uh, and it blew up. So you know, there's a lot of lessons that get repeated, and it's interesting to see some of those come around again when we've got high inflation and and high interest rates. Indeed, indeed. I I, I read a book, and I you know, I'll, 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 I'll finish this before we dive into Pearson Ham, but. Um, it was uh, called This Time It's Different, and it basically was an analysis of every single um, credit crisis for right. the past, you know, 700-odd years. Um, and the, the, the mentality was everybody always thinks this time it's different, but it never is. Not, not really, no. Uh, I might have to read that book. That yeah, yeah, one. I'll send it on to you. But um, look, Ben, tell us about what the Pearson Ham Group does. Yeah, so Pearson Ham, um, founded 10 years ago by, by Tim Ham, the, the, the current founder and CEO, um, specializes in pricing. Mm-hmm. Um, pricing is literally everywhere. You know, if you're buying something, um, you, you've got to transact over a price. Mm. So um, Tim realized there were some big partners out there, big firms out there, but equally um, many businesses weren't getting the, the kind of the consulting and the, the advice they need. Yeah. So um, so you set out to do that. And, and it's been you know hugely, hugely successful. Yes. If you travel, you're probably on a firm that, we, that we've helped with their pricing. If you're drinking a beverage or going into a, a bar, probably help, we probably help there. So um, they and, 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 and we do a lot of advice on just the overall commercial model. How are you interacting with your customers on price? Yes. Um, and then ideally we follow up with, and how is that changing over time as your users or your audience or your customers become you know, more, more willing to um, engage with you um, or less willing? So you, know, you have to involve the data. The yeah, data bit. yeah. So Pearson Ham does a lot of uh, consultancy, mm-hmm. but the, the reason I came in is they also have a, a big data firm. Yes. And that data firm or data elements called it's called market pricing, um, picks up a lot of data points that, that are very important around pricing, um, and then we, we don't need to consult on that. We then just provide the, that data anonymized and cleansed mm. out to the, the bigger firms who who absorb data but just can't gather it themselves profitably. Sure. So um, yeah, that's how that's how I uh, I came into Pearson Ham Fantastic. with my kind of product background rather than a consulting background. Excellent. Yeah. So look, let, let's dive into the data within pricing for a moment there. So you know you mentioned um, 
that you know you're able to anonymize and package up some of that data and give it to a firm are we able to dive one level deeper into say a, a, an example of, of that happening yeah i was brought into pearson ham to look at the um, aftermarket side mm. and how we can use data to help the aftermarket customers yes um, the aftermarket if, if you don't know is really understanding the parts of the car that you fit like after three years when you don't have to go to the fully expensive fully approved warranty you can kind of go kind of non-genuine mm -hmm. um, it's a huge market absolutely huge like six seven billion pounds in the uk spent every year yes um the firm that we were really interested in managed to track all of these parts through from from the supply to um how they get to the garages yeah and we looked at the the understanding of that and how you use that data in the marketplace and thought you know that's quite um it's quite hard for individual garages or individual um distributors to understand mm. so we, we brought this firm um, which looks at the prices and the volume of uh -huh. a lot of the parts that get supplied into the market. Um, we track like a million different SKUs. Wow. Um, but what, what we really like about that is that you get the price and you get the quantity. And yes. when you've got those two elements, you can then start doing a lot of modeling. If you just got price, you can have a good guess at what elasticity is. But yeah. if you've got, you know, what your price is and what other people are paying for it and the change in volumes between those two, mm. then you can start doing a lot of modeling. So um, that's when your your data analysis and the results that you can produce become, become really, really attractive. Fantastic, yeah. And so then would you be working with, let's say, the producers of those parts in order to say, hey, you know, there's actually... A, a, a revenue opportunity yeah. here for you yeah no absolutely right it's um we call them the suppliers and mm -hmm. you've got oems and you've got sort of um, value suppliers so we work with the value suppliers who can you know put and fit any any part on your car yeah um and what is interesting is the breadth of those suppliers so so some are absolutely huge you know multi-billion turnover mm. and some are doing 20 million because they just like windscreen wipers yes. or you know they just like you know w uh, suspension arms mm. so um i've certainly got to know a lot about a car that i didn't know a couple of years ago <laughs> um but it's them working with them and giving them the data in the format that they need yeah some of the bigger guys just want like a, a flat file with all the information and they can load it into their tableau or their focus yes um whereas some um, um, come to us for can you just show me the insights on my company and, and how I'm doing mm. and therefore what can we do to, to make a difference or uh, and then a lot of it is um, is new product development which I think is really important yeah um, so it's w what am I not selling that's hot in the market uh, mm. and that is like gold dust to some of some of these uh, manufacturers yeah indeed indeed and look I mean I think um, uh, I'm just going to take a step back because we're talking a lot about about the data and how this can influence pricing and, for example, you know, identify opportunities to produce new products. But if we think about industries like airlines and hotels, I remember when I was doing revenue management at British Airways, for example, you know, like there were a whole number of factors that came into account yep. in, in terms of seasonality, you know, what percentage of the flight do we expect corporates to book, um, particularly in, say, business class? Um, and when I was working at the Four Seasons as well, it, you know, there was real-time sort of availability being managed and distributed through Booking.com and Expedia and direct channels and whatnot. So you've got, you've got companies in the travel industry that are essentially pricing in real time. What was the sort of, let's say, lag between you providing the data to these automotive companies and then them then actually acting on it? Yeah, it's a really good question and quite hard because there's a delay mm. um, in the aftermarket, uh, which is where the, the firm that I, that I brought 
it can be a three to six month delay mm. because some of them have got supply agreements that they've nailed down. Um, yeah. Often they the, the 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 garages and the distributors work in in a, in, in like a buying group, like a big collective. Mm. So that's all um, uh, sort of ironed out in quite ahead of time. So it's not as, as, as to your market, so a rapidly moving market. Yeah. But we can still give the information because product development takes a bit of time and it's you know useful to understand the market especially when the market is quite opaque so mm -hmm. it's it's you know there aren't barcodes out there there aren't you know huge huge suppliers doing what we do so the, we we can still provide useful information mm. albeit it might take a, a bit of time for them to feed through yes. but interestingly the other side of what we do is is in the insurance market we provide to to you know all the insurers that you'll know for pet and for home and for motor about to go into travel nice. um daily prices on how um, that insurer is is looking at a, a raft of standardized policies mm -hmm. and they act on it daily wow, wow. so um you know we, we we almost to your point do do daily uh you know interactions and then we do give them the information but they can't act on it for three or six months because of the the way they can distribute through through the supply chain yeah fantastic and look i i think it's excellent just how data is being used more and more in terms of making decisions. I know a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, we had um, somebody from Flock, um, Adib from Flock, who spoke about telematics and how that was being yep. used to price insurance. But you know, I guess that would then be used to price an annual quote. Whereas in the future, the more data that exists, I mean, I, I, I would think that we're gonna eventually move to price insurance in real time or daily um but i i don't know if you have a view on that but i uh i think it, it could happen do consumers want that and there needs to be some certainty in in what they do mm. but you've got the new insurers like carve who will give you insurance per hour so yes. i think i think for if if there's a problem i think product is great about going and finding that problem and then and then and then giving giving the solution mm. sometimes you see products that that are a great solution, but they're missing the problem yes. uh, to, to, to go and find. So, um, yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see where we go on on um, more often than, than annual pricing for things like insurance. Yeah, fantastic. Excellent. Well, look, Ben, that, that's been you know a great deep dive into what Pierce and Ham do, what you've done there, certainly post-transaction, post-acquisition. Um, and you know, I love the insurance example. I could discuss InsureTech you know, for, for, for days. Um, but you know, you, you've touched upon the fact that your focus has been building products and, and, and products or ops. So do you want to tell us a bit about why that's important? Yeah, uh, yeah, I'd love to actually. Um, product ops, I think, is a relatively new kind of term mm. and um, sometimes misunderstood through the industry. Um, having set up a product ops team in uh, at Dext, um, I've come to realize just how important it is, especially if you really want to scale. Yeah. Um, and, and to understand sometimes the the lack of understanding around it we, we originally called it um a commercial product so mm -hmm. we just thought it was about getting more return from from the r d team yes but actually it's not um product ops is about coordinating the whole company mm -hmm. and i think if there's two lessons i've learned on on how to run a really good product ops team either small or you know really really large it's really focused on the communication and then really look at the roadmap yes um communication why uh i think uh, R&D teams sometimes find it hard to communicate why their building stuff, why their roadmap is there. Mm. Uh, and then sometimes they have to defend it. 
and sometimes they need to change it. Yes. So you've really got to engage with the stakeholders. And that was a huge lesson at Dext where I think towards the end of my time there, we certainly were engaging with the sales a lot more, mm-hmm. which means they were selling stuff they wanted to and we were building stuff that, that they could sell. So it was yeah. a really good two-way interaction. Um, and we were making a lot of the the, the R&D, think more, R&D team think more about the commerciality of, of, of what they were building, mm-hmm. which then kind of pivots to the roadmap, which I think is a really secondary important one, where... Um, we need to be not questioning why the PMs are, are building stuff. You know, mm-hmm. they're, they're the owners of of, of 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 what they do. They understand the market. It's really about saying, okay, well, wh- why are you building that over suggestion B or suggestion C? Okay, yes. you're going to go with A. When are you going to do it? How long is it going to take? Um, what does success look like along that journey? What are the milestones? Mm. You know, we've got some got some battle scars, as you mentioned earlier, on on building out product that yeah. um, that just didn't work. Uh, well, mm. <laughs> it worked, but it didn't it didn't didn't solve the issue that we th- we thought it was, and we kind of rushed to productionalize that. And, and I think if we'd had a stronger product ops focus, we would have sort of made sure to say, "Hang on, we didn't hit that milestone. Mm. Right, let's go back to the drawing board and understand why," yeah. rather than just saying, "Oh, I'm sure it'll be fine in the end." So, yeah, for me, a really strong product ops team has got great communication cross functionally over the over the org. Mm. Really important in bigger, bigger organisations, um, and it really talks about the roadmap and and actually using data and and softwares like Segment yes. to really understand the user journey through these new products and the old products to to really understand what is happening yeah. which is why i love data because you can answer a lot of questions on data indeed indeed that's right and look you know you mentioned cross-functional and so i want to jump to an example from revolut where there were cross-functional teams wherein let's say the engineers and the product owner and you know the data person and the salesperson um, or bd manager were all incentivized by the same goal um, so you know they were all incentivized by that final commercial outcome so a question i have is you mentioned you know the r d teams that are often working on you know new technologies and such um some of which you know may be wanted by the sales team some of which aren't how do you incentivize those r d teams to deliver the right commercial outcomes we could talk for hours on this. Um, I, I think it's one of the closest things and, and the most enjoyable things that I do because I've come from a very commercial background and, mm. and a lot of PMs haven't had that, the, the benefit of 20 years in, in, in investment banking and business banking. Mm. Um, but we, we, we do need to make sure that we're all pointing in the same direction. Yeah. And actually that direction probably can be twofold. One is end revenue goals. Mm-hmm. We have to make money. We talked about it earlier. We all need to make a profit. Um, th- you know, these days, just sort of accumulating losses is 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 we need to be avoided. Mm. But uh, I think product managers struggle a bit on that because I made the product. Did sales sell it, or or wasn't the product good enough so sales didn't sell it? Mm. So that's why I think product ups helps, and and we can talk to the the, the PMs about well, what are your user outcomes actually? Yeah. Um, what are the users going to do with it? How are they going to use it? How often are they going to interact with it? Are they going to use this to upsell themselves or cross-sell themselves? Mm. Is the platform strong enough to make sure that that cross-sell happens sort of self-service rather than human-assisted? Yeah. So those things are directly helping or maybe maybe indirectly helping your direct cause, which is revenue. Yes. So I, I learned that it was really hard to, to put revenue goals on product releases. Mm. But I think if you focus on the user outcomes... And those are really, really well thought through. Then the user outcomes deliver your revenue goals, but yes. probably indirectly. And I think 
product teams and R&D teams can think clearer on user outcomes, which are mm. measurable. Um, you know, there's a click, there's a push, there's a button, there's a transition through the product um, than necessarily the revenue because revenue is talking to your chief revenue officer and understanding how the sales are doing it yeah. and how, how it's being sold. But we can't operate in a vacuum. So I think user outcomes and financial goals need to get married together. And that's what a great product ops team can do. Yeah, excellent. And look, I, I just want to jump down um, uh, into the cost side um, because I know when I was buying software, for example, you know, you mentioned Segment, which is a customer data platform. Yep. Um, when I was looking at that at Getir, as we were adding on different services in Turkey to build out that super app, one number which was increasing more and more and more was the throughput. Um, and so, you know, does product ops also consider things from a cost perspective in terms of, all right, what cost impact will this have on our customer data platform and tech stack? Yeah, it, it does. That said, I think um, we're, we're, we're dealing with humans in, in the R&D world, so yeah. we tried not to make it um, really too heavily focused on cost because mm. suddenly looking at time and, and clicking in and clicking out and time guys like, well, no, we do, we're not interested in that, guys. Yeah. But I think as you build out um, a better understanding of your customers through, through it and you're pointing to all of these user outcome goals, you need software to do that. Mm. And software adds up, you know, segment, I think is a great tool. Optimizely, another AB testing tool yeah. it is a great tool, but you don't just plug it in and, and walk away. You know, yes. it takes a lot of time to make sure it's, it's properly tracked through the journey, both of those. Mm. And then you've got a culture of using the information and the data points it produces back into the roadmap to help you help you build out. Yeah. I, I think, well, I have seen companies that have, have plugged these systems in at, you know, significant cost mm. and they're not being used yeah, um, yeah mainly because things are focused on revenue and these things aren't pointing directly to revenue or, or not highlighting the journey to revenue so um i, I think product ops is and, and we had a you know chunky million tens of million pound r d budget spent a lot of time making sure that we were having the right people back to like creating the right squads yes to make sure that everything was being built with the right cadence and relying on the software. But software can become, you know, a multi-million pound cost in, yeah. in something the size of, of, of Dex. And even at Pearson Ham, it's, it's about a third of our overall tech costs, yeah, you know, salary and, and stuff. So um, it, it can add up. And cloud software adds up really, really quick. Yes, so yeah. um, part, part of, um, I think, a, a good product ops team is just questioning why you've got that software. Mm. And you mentioned cross-functional cross work. It's actually working with your business partners in finance to yes. make sure that, that we've got the budget for this and we're not just continually spending it because it's there and it's nice and shiny. Yeah. So, yeah, there, there, there should be a lot of focus on on cost mm. um, to, to help the business move forward. Indeed, yeah. Uh, I think, you know, unused sort of SaaS seats are a, a massive, you know, cost contributor for, for many organizations. Yep. Um, but, uh, yeah, like uh, we, we did a did a podcast with um, Matt Hicks from Vertice, um, you know, and they have a huge amount of visibility across organizations and, you know, certainly confirm that there are a lot of unused seats out yep. there in the market um, contributing to some pretty, you know, decent profit margins in Silicon Valley. Well, it is. We At the start of this, we talked about retention, right? Mm. But that mm. is a retention problem right there because if, yeah. if you've got a product ops team like me that are looking on how many spare licenses have we got and how, how long have they been spare, yeah. I'm going to chop those, you know, as soon as we can. So yeah. uh, th that's why I think... Um, e even those big Silicon Valley companies that might be making a lot of money now on on you know high high user licenses, 
do need to look at their own usage yeah. as we did at Dex and as you know I've done elsewhere because things change uh, and, and suddenly you know we, we saw in COVID everybody started cutting you know software costs yes yeah. Um, I think they're back up to, to normal volumes now but uh, I think you've got to be really close to making sure from a retention point of view you're not you're not making too much money now mm. at the cost of money in the future indeed yeah and I, I think you know gradually what we'll see evolve is a, a move away let's say from SaaS to more consumption based um, pricing um, which you know ultimately is going to be what's fairest you know yeah. for for businesses it's it, you know in in finance you've got you know treat customers fairly yeah regulation in SaaS, it's still kind of unregulated but i'm sure that you know we'll, we'll eventually get to something more consumption based yeah I, I i think you w- i think you will i think we will and and when I was at Dext, um, as well as product ops, so I went into pricing and packaging. Actually, that came first, okay, which then moved yeah. on to commercial product, which moved on to commercial uh, uh, product ops. And I think I'm just understanding your commercial model, mm. which is what we do at Pricing Ham a lot, uh, Piss and Ham, sorry, a lot, is is really important because you you make decisions on what is going to be the best outcome. And and if your if your user isn't up there, yeah, quite high up in 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 voting for the best outcome. Um, I think longer term you're gonna you're gonna suffer. Yes. Uh, and and at Dex we did a huge amount of work on do we want to sell just this like big bundle of all you can eat and and the price never change or do we want to go to your consumption model? Yeah. Um, we were dealing with accountants and bookkeepers, um, so it took a bit of time to get that message out. Mm. But I think both for 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 Receipt Bank Dex and our and our shareholders and ultimately for the customers, I think the consumption model is a much fairer model. Yeah. It just yeah. takes some time to get there. Um, and I've got the battle scars on on getting that as well. Um, yeah. I just did an interview yesterday actually on 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 something around you know how do you move from big bundle non bundled all you can eat pricing to to a more refined consumption model. Yes. And, um, yes, it's surprising the the transition and the steps you need to make, but it's it's all good fun. Indeed, yeah. And look, uh, you know, I mean, I'm I'm a user of Dex. Uh, you know, I think it's a fantastic package. I know a lot of people that use it for. You know, businesses from small to, to yep. quite large ones. Um, but are you able to talk us through, you know, sort of your experience there when you were scaling it? Yeah, absolutely. And again, I could talk talk for hours on <laughs> it. Um, I think under if the business is scaling, it needs the infrastructure to scale. Mm. Um, and something we learned relatively early with, uh, and I worked with some really good chief product officers was how do we invest in the scaling of it mm. so it's the segments plugged segment and that sort of stuff in early um understand your r&d teams which squads are doing what mm-hmm. and then make sure they're not having bottlenecks or or they're having dependence on each other so you can you can continuously deploy a lot mm. of stuff mm. um i think then going to scale is are there other companies that are very complementary on what we what you can do, and, and we we found too. So it was great. So that I was part of the team that emanated, you know, two, two companies into Dext. Yeah. Um, and the lessons learned there are make sure that if you're looking to upsell and cross sell, mm-hmm. you know, it's pricing stuff that I'm talking about again. Yeah, it kind yeah. of runs through my career. <laughs> There's no barriers, mm. uh, which means you need a really cool cool platform, and the customers need to know. Um, 
what jobs am I doing on product A, yes. which was like the receipt bank, which is called Prepare Now, to moving on to what jobs can be done in Precision, which was the first company we brought to, what jobs can be done in in in, in the e-commerce offering. Yes. Um, so making them aware of of the solutions you've got in your in your stable of products, but making it really easy for them to access. Yeah. I mean, it sounds obvious. But, you know, we come from a product background, really hard to do because you've got three different platforms written in three different or three different products written in three different codes Code, yeah, with three different yeah. dev teams, you know, in different parts of the world. And in even signing on with a with a consistent, you know, username um, or email address mm. becomes quite a challenge. So how you scale is if you build it in-house or you, you go and you go and buy yeah something else if you're buying something else you really got to think about how is it going to get integrated so um yeah a lot of my work um at, at dex and and, and at pearson ham has been what we call pmi post-merger integration okay which okay. i loved i love that the most i think because yeah. um you've got people you've got processes um mm. and it's about making sure that, that the people in the process and then your plans are, are fitting together and it's delivering the outcomes that that you got excited about when you when you wanted to go and buy the firm. Fantastic, and I think you know that's a great little summary of you know what are the say top three post merger challenges. You know, I mean the integration, the people, and the processes. Uh, you carved that out well. Yeah, thanks. No, you you can't. I just again battle scars, right? Yeah. Done, done it twice. Uh, done it three times actually now at Pearson Ham, and um, it's always different. Mm. Um, I think uh, we underestimate the people side of thing, but once you really develop into that, you you just find some great people out there that are doing some wonderful jobs. And you're like, wow, you can do that over here, and it would be like three x in value. Yeah, come yeah. on in. Um, so that's it's just really exciting. Fantastic. And look, Ben, you know we've had people on the podcast before who have come from private equity backgrounds, and they may have been purchasing the companies. You've been in a company which is you know sold um, you know to a PE firm. What would you say the biggest challenges? Uh, as an operator after a PE investment? Yeah, that, that is a great question. Um, the, the, the biggest challenge before is making the deal happen. Mm-hmm. And for, for, for my role, when HG came in, it was about our roadmaps. You know, do our roadmaps make sense? Yeah. They did. They were great roadmaps, and we could justify what we were doing and why we were doing it and when we were going to do it. And we had a bit of pedigree on, on um, uh, delivering on time. I think, I think post-transaction, everything sort of everything uh, settles down a little bit mm. and then the pressure comes yes um you know it's coming you don't quite know what form it's going to take so for me a big lesson is making sure again it goes back to the infrastructure and it can handle that pressure think of a big building a lot of pressure coming in on the top yes. and that just feeds through to the foundations yes. so um i think in 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 future roles and i'd love to be, be part of that again i want to make sure that kind of pre-transaction we know what the pressure is going to be like where mm-hmm. it's going to come and we start directing time resources thinking all that stuff on on kind of fixing where we think it might crumble first yeah because once yeah. one part goes it, it's really hard to maintain a united front uh and then you start slipping on user outcomes your revenue starts to fall behind the pe firm becomes ever more interested in your business um <laughs> and and they they're, they're great to work with they're probably a bunch of cleverest people i've ever been around yeah um but you know there's no such thing as a free lunch so that's right, that's it, right. It's, it's pretty tough yeah fantastic and look um uh ben you know at the beginning of the conversation we spoke a bit about investment banking the fx markets interest rates business banking um you know, and it's it's quite timely because on the 3rd of October, so next week, 
We'll be releasing a podcast on emerging markets, FX, and liquidity issues there. Um, so, you, you know, you exited from the banking space about 10, 10 years yep. or so ago. What, what have you seen change since then? Yeah, uh, what have I seen change? Um, n- not a lot and lots. Yeah, I think I think not a lot. You still got these big banks, the, the Bark in in the UK, especially. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got you've got NatWest slash RBS. You've got Lloyd's. You've got you've got Barclays, HSBC to some extent, but they might be sort of moving moving sort of their gaze slightly more globally. Mm. Um, th- they have gone through uh, a huge upheaval since the financial crisis, like two thousand eight, two thousand and nine, yeah. and I think they're now really pushing on profitability i think their digital teams are really speeding up and they're Mm. doing uh, a lot of work on moving some of their systems to the cloud not not all of them but they've got a lot of systems to move in terms of many things have changed i think the neo banks the fintechs um the clanas of this world um the shorebrooks the the allocas um that they're all understanding what they need to do yes and i think they wanted to be very much sort of disrupting into the banking industry 10 mm. years ago. The ones that have survived are now probably need to be a little bit more like a bank yes. because we've seen what happens to SVB. Boom, that happens yeah. really quick um, f- for, for reasons I think are probably avoidable. But you, you need people that we were talking earlier, going through the full circle of, of, of banking crises and, and economic crises. A lot of the same things happens, which is often your capital structure yeah. and, your, and your liquidity. You know, these things don't change. Banking yes. has been around for, for many years. Um, and I think a lot of the fintechs, the neobank, the challenger banks are making sure they've got a certain amount of scale, mm. which they can means they can put the people in kind of with my experience who, who've been it around and done it mm-hmm. and can work with the product teams and, and the dev teams to make sure that you're building the right product. I was chatting with a, with, with a friend of mine, um, a really good CPO, one of these banks, and they are building out um, two sets of products, one for customers mm-hmm. and one for colleagues. Oh, wow. And I thought that was yeah. really neat because previously I've really been focusing on making sure dev teams are built out and R&D teams are building out for, for customers, yeah. revenue, yeah. all that. These guys are actually thinking about, yeah, but... Uh, we are a kind of people business, so let's make sure that our colleagues have got all of the right systems. Yes, um, ability to use data, to understand pricing decisions, to to, to be to be quick and nimble with that with with their customers. Yeah. Um. So I I love that quote. Yeah. Yeah. Customers and and colleagues. So I think that's what's probably changing a lot in in the the challenger banks and the neo banks. Yeah. Fantastic. And I I think there's a great case study from Airbnb about you know some of the products that they built internally for say their data teams. I think Uber did the same. Um, Airbnb built this data university, which was fantastic because not only did they build tools for their colleagues, but they provided them, you know, let's say a framework to ensure that tool adoption was quite high. Um, but um, I want to jump back to Silicon Valley Bank for, for a moment, yep. um, because one of the quotes I read during that crisis was the fact that you know, although in the past other, let's say, financial institutions had been in a similar situation where, you know, they had, you know, made some, let's say, liquidity decisions and, yep. and you know, had started to be um, or having those decisions bite them back because SVB was a digital bank um, and everything could happen so quickly. A bank run in 2022 or 2023 occurs at a much faster rate relative to 20 or 30 years ago. And so do, do you see the fact that everything can happen so quickly now as being a bit of a risk for banks? Um, yes and no. I, I think um, digital banks 
and and you know traditional banks will experience a run on deposits mm. if they've got a big big building or if it's all digital if yeah. if if one happens two happens three it's a domino effect mm-hmm. so I, I i personally think that nowadays you can get your money out pretty quickly whether you have to queue whether you have to go to to to, to your online banking or whether it's a fully digital bank i think you've got that risk yeah um so therefore you need to address the funding you know yeah. do, do you have it all in instant access corporate deposits that will just will just go quickly mm. can you make sure that those those um deposits either Customer or corporate are protected by by government schemes. I think that's a big thing that the Bank of England is looking at right now. Yeah, I think it was really interesting with SBB, which got me interested in banking again. I thought I'd left it ten years ago. I'm now looking to go back into it. Is that they were investing in really high quality assets, mm. but because of the mark to market principle, um, you know, the value of those assets shot down when interest rates went up. Yes, yeah. So they couldn't sell their portfolio without incurring a 20 whatever percent percent loss to mm. fund the deposits that were going out yeah um so that would have been completely avoidable if they'd done some proper treasury management on, yes. on it and had interest rates like interest rate derivatives that that um that go up in value so uh, for me it was um not entirely necessarily how they structured their their overall liquidity mm. it was about considering events that hadn't happened in 10 years but hey as interest rates go up well interest rates do go up yeah um it's been a long time since they did but when they did they went up quick and the chain of events that happened you know covid and the, the war in ukraine and the supply mm. and then inflation issues um made that journey really really quick yeah and, and i do think um the push to marking a lot of assets to market is is a bit of a contributor to that um but yeah f- for me that's what got got me interested again in in, in banking is like well gosh 20 years i was helping that west with a lot of this stuff yeah. um and, and running these positions centrally so it seems that collectively a bit of a, a bit of a brain meltdown in in not structuring what, what they should be doing yeah. i might be wrong i'm happy to be you know called in by listeners <laughs> but um for me uh it was like oh wow yeah let's let's see what what banks that i could go and help are, are doing um yeah just to get that collective memory going again. Fantastic, yeah. And look, you know, do, do you have any views of, let's say, the FX market? I guess since you since you left banking, um, you know, there's been a, a big push, particularly on um, you know main currencies and pushing down to the interbank rate, driven by companies like Revolut, TransferWise, um, Airwallex, in the B two B space. Um, do you have any views of you know what's in store for FX? God, I, I don't. Um, I, I I think the reason Revolut and, and, and Wise has been so popular because they've access to the interbank rate. Mm. Um, the, the advent of digital, you know, on our phones, we can get the interbank rate within 10 seconds. Yes. 20 years, 15 years, even like 10 years ago, a lot of big corporates didn't have access to being able, even small corporates, right? Couldn't, couldn't, couldn't go and buy, you know, a, a million euros without paying a really, really big spread. Yeah, yeah. So I think um, that market is opening up. There's a lot of technologies and, and service providers who are probably 10 years old now who are, who are doing a lot of that. So mm. I don't necessarily see that changing a huge amount. Um, what would be great if, if we saw more companies from a foreign exchange point of view do like hedging, yes. locking in forward purchases, for, forward sales. Whether the banks want to do that with unknown credit mm. risks on on small companies because um, you know they can get very expensive if if it goes the wrong way. Yeah. Um, 
I think the foreign exchange market is is really interesting. I think actually payments is now interesting as well as the foreign exchange market. I wish I got into deeper into payments ten years ago because <laughs> just just the advent of all the new firms coming out and you know buy now pay later type type stuff. Yeah. Um, the embedded finance. Um, I think that's going to be probably really cool to watch in the next five years. Yes. I think the foreign exchange was uncovered by Revolut and and those firms have pushed that a bit. But yeah, the the embedded finance and and how companies are, are funding themselves maybe just moving away from a credit you know personal credit card mm-hmm. um I, I i think could be a really interesting space to watch fantastic excellent look ben we we normally finish up with with key takeaways but before we go to that is there anything that you want to discuss with the audience before uh we we go to your let's say ultimate wisdom <laughs> um I'm not prepared for that one. Uh, what would normally people say? Uh, well, uh, in terms of you know any closing remarks or, or, or the takeaways. Okay. Uh, yeah, that, that's a great one. I mean, we talked about product ups. You know how how excited I am on product yeah. ups. So I think if 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 companies are looking to scale, they've got you know multi million, if not ten million pound R and D expenditure. Yeah. Get get a really good product ops team in. Start start that early on. Yeah. And and really grow into um, using them to to make. The, the really good decisions yes um so yeah uh, uh, and then use data all, all along the way be it if you're a pricing firm be it if you're if you're providing solutions to to accountants yeah um just just use the the softwares to to provide breadcrumbs to that that customer journey yes really f- focus on the customer journey uh and i think it might take a while but you'll see really good results from that fantastic excellent and look ben one one sort of more personal question you know i mean you've You've been, you know, one of the people in product who's really been able to, let's say, climb the ladder, you know, holding director and VP positions. From a personal sense, what has helped you on that journey? Wow, uh, that's a great question. What's helped me on the journey? Um, I've had some great managers. Um, I've had some great people I've worked with, Re- mm. really, really great people. Dext was uh, a bit like Revolut, I think, a real hotbed of people. Yeah, and it's interesting yeah. to see they've all spread out a little bit now. Indeed. And um, you, you, I don't go 10, t- 10 days without seeing somebody on on, uh, on like LinkedIn like pick up a really new cool position. Yeah. So um, I, I think absorbing working with these really talented individuals mm. to some extent i came from a very different world so they really helped my journey mm. i think they saw in me somebody that had um, other skills they wanted to pick up you know all this banking stuff yeah. so you know that mutual exchange of of ideas mm. um is 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 something that i think really helped and um gosh i'd love to do it all over again maybe i will <laughs> um so yeah that would be my 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 parting Fantastic. My parting comments. Yeah. Processing people. Excellent. Well, look, Ben, thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing your wisdom with no us worries. and the war stories. And, you know, we're uh, excited to hear, you know, what what's up, you know, next for you in um, uh, in the latter parts of your career. No, great. It's been, um, it's been wonderful. Please invite me back. Excellent. Will do. Super. Thanks, Lucas. Thanks, Ben. Thank you. Cheers.